If you have a Bible, open it up with me to John chapter 16. And when you find it, you can stand with me as we read. We'll just read one verse. John chapter 16, verse 7. Jesus speaking says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would uh, illuminate the scriptures. Lord, I don't have much to add, and uh, really, Lord, I feel like we're treading on territory again where um, the more I would add, the more I would uh, mess it up. So I pray that you would speak from the scriptures, that we would look intently and with wonder at the scriptures, at the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we know that it's not your job or your intention to ever magnify yourself, but to exalt Christ. But we do ask that you'd help us to at least understand who you are and your work. Holy Spirit, we worship you as God. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. So I'll recap again since we took a break last week and we did a little um, test. This time I will recap where we've been so far very quickly and perhaps we'll come back to question and answer time in the future to see how we're, how we're learning. The statement I'm trying to prove in this series is this. Just as our Lord Jesus Christ in His humiliation displayed the glory of God on the earth through His authoritative word and powerful deeds, through the power of the Holy Spirit. You remember all that? We've, that's what we've studied so far. So also the local church, the mystical body of Christ, is to display the glory of God on the earth through the preaching of His authoritative word and sacrificial love through the power of the same Holy Spirit. Christology leads to ecclesiology. We've studied Christ. Uh, we, we took the first week and, and opened up the foundational metaphor. The local church in Scripture is called the body of Christ. And Christ is the head of the church. He is the head of the body. So we're trying to picture in our minds this body with moving parts and various members that all work together to carry out the functions of a body. Then we looked at the head of the church, focusing then specifically on Christ. He is God and He is man. As God, He has all of the essential attributes of God. And as man, He has all of the essential attributes of God, or as man. 
Then the third week, we focused on Christ's earthly ministry. It was a ministry of word and deed, and he displayed the purpose of that was to display the glory of God in word and deed. And then last week, we looked at the source of Christ's power in His humiliation. When, I, when we say humiliation, we're talking about his, his incarnation in His earthly ministry. We saw the Holy Spirit was given at His baptism. We saw the Holy Spirit's power in His deeds. We saw the Holy Spirit's power in His words. And so in conclusion, we saw that the preaching of the Word of God and His ministry of love and mercy, that would be his, the deeds that He performed, was carried out in a display of the power of the Holy Spirit. So you see, all of the first part of that, that primary axiom, the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ, mediator, God and man, in His humiliation, His earthly ministry, displayed the glory of God on the earth through His authoritative word and powerful deeds. How did He do it? Through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what we've seen. All right, tonight we're going to make a very quick transition between Christology and Ecclesiology. We're going to try to get from, from where we've been to where we want to be going. Remember, we started off this whole thing with the intention of getting to the spiritual gifts. But we have to understand what the gifts are and why we have them. And so we're going to cover a lot of ground. I've actually collaborated three of the, the main headings into one. Um, so there will be a lot. If you have questions, you can raise your hand and ask. Or you can make a note and ask at the end. That's fine. Um, so here's the question that I want to try to answer. And I ask this question. I want you to see if in your mind you can come up with an answer. So here's the question. What special blessing was promised upon the ascension of Christ that connects everything we've learned about Christ to our present situation? And how does that blessing make the connection? What is the special blessing that was promised upon the ascension of Christ that connects all that He did and all that we've studied to our present situation? And then how does that blessing make the connection? Again, we're talking about historical events in history, and then we're talking about ourselves here and now. What makes the connection? So this is the, the fifth main heading, the blessing of Christ's ascension. So if you're putting all this together, this would be Roman numeral 5, or V, the blessing of Christ's ascension. So turn with me. Hopefully you still have your Bibles. You can just flip a page over to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, the blessing of Christ's ascension, promised at His ascension. Here we're going to see the promise of the Holy Spirit. John chapter 14. First I want to read verses 16 through 17. And I want you to pay close attention to the details of what's being said. Very often when we have this inter-Trinitarian language, we, we can become confused or we can tend to pit one member of the Trinity against another. So pay attention to the language here. John chapter 14, verse 16. Again, Jesus is speaking. I do believe the context of chapter 14, 15, 16, and even in 
some into chapter 17 is all the context of the Holy Spirit, the giving of the Holy Spirit. And so he says here, verse 16, And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. Or, you see the footnote there, some manuscripts, and is in you. So we see there, from the language of Christ, the Father will send the Holy Spirit. Okay, look at verses 25 and 26 of the same chapter. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Again, the Father will send the Spirit. We put those two passages together and we can see from the language of Christ, the Holy Spirit had been with them will be with them and in them. And here, the primary actor or the active agent in the sending of the Holy Spirit is the Father. Christ will ask the Father and He will give the Holy Spirit. The Father will send there in uh, verse 26. The Father will send the Holy Spirit in the name of Christ, in Christ's name or on behalf of Christ. Now, the sending of the Holy Spirit by the Father does not mean that the Holy Spirit up until this point had not been active on earth or in men. I think the sending of the Holy Spirit simply implies a new quality of the work of the Spirit. And then we can, we'll, we'll get into a little bit more detail uh, with regard to what the difference is or what the change would have been, but I don't think that the, the, the difference lies in the work of the Holy Spirit. The difference lies in the, the other things that were happening to which the Holy Spirit testifies. So we see the Father sending the Spirit. Christ says, I will ask the Father and He will send the Spirit. Now in chapter 15, verse 26, we read, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me. So there Jesus is speaking and He says, when the Helper comes, whom I will send from the Father. So the Father will send the Holy Spirit, Christ will send the Holy Spirit. And then look at verse 7 again of chapter 16 that we read at the beginning. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. There we see that the sending or the giving of the Holy Spirit is conditioned upon Christ's return into heaven. It's to your advantage. If I don't go, you don't receive the Holy Spirit. 
It's to your advantage. So, so just in these few promises, we see the Holy Spirit will be sent by the Father in Christ's name, but also Christ too will be the sender of the Holy Spirit. And it's all contingent upon the ascension of Christ. I want to read just a statement from our confession. It says, speaking of God, The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. That's why we say first person, second person, third person. Neither of them is more God than the other. They're not unequal, but in their work and in the, perhaps we could say the manifestation of the, the, the work, I guess, the Father is the source the Son stands apart from the Father, and the Spirit proceeds from them both. The Father will send the Spirit. The Son will send the Spirit. So, that's the promise. This is all prior to Christ's death. The promise of the Holy Spirit. Again, I do believe chapters 14 through 17, the whole discourse, final discourse, that the Lord has with His disciples is centered around... What's going to happen after I leave? He's been with them for three years. He's been training them. He's been teaching them. He's been preparing them for the kingdom. And now he's saying, all right, guys, I'm about to leave. I'm out of here. And so he's preparing them. He, in his uh, gentleness and in his care for him, it says he loved them until the end. He, he wanted to comfort them by knowing he will be with them, but it will be through the, through the, the Holy Spirit. So now turn to Acts chapter 2. And I want to look at the authority to execute the promise. A promise has been made concerning a person of the Godhead. Namely, the, I'll ask the Father and He'll send Him. I'll go to the Father and I'll send Him. The Father will send Him in Christ's name. How does, or from where does Christ, who is God and yet man, from where does He derive His authority to say to the Holy Spirit, Go. Because remember, He's man. Again, we, we want to say, well, He's God. Well, the Holy Spirit is also God. And Christ is man. So where does He get that authority? Remember, the sending of the Holy Spirit was conditioned upon His return to heaven. Acts chapter 2, verse 32. Verses 30, 32 and 33. Peter is preaching here. He's speaking of Christ. And he says, this Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. That's the resurrection. And then verse 33. Being therefore... So because He was raised up, therefore He's exalted at the right hand of God. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Now remember what we know about the ascension of Christ. We've, we've looked at Daniel 7 over and over. In Daniel chapter 7, there, there comes one. He's presented before the Ancient of Days. And unto him is given a kingdom, uh, a dominion without end. He's given a name that is above every other name. We learn in Philippians 2. And so at Christ's ascension, he receives this, this power and this dominion and this... Um, this exaltation higher than he had ever had before. And also a part of his being exalted 
was the authority to pour out the Spirit upon men. Notice it says, being therefore exalted and having received from the Father, He has poured out. So if you can picture it in your mind, Christ ascends to the heavens, the Father exalts Him, hands the kingdom over into His hands, along with the authority to direct and dispense the Holy Spirit. It's almost like in His humiliation He had been filled with the Spirit and then at the ascension the Father says, Here Son, now you do with the Spirit as you please. The Father had given the Spirit to the Son to empower His ministry and now the Spirit has been given the authority to execute the promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit. So we have the promise and then we have the authority to execute the promise given to the Lord Jesus and then we have the Spirit given. So you follow me here, there's a promise, the authority, and then He's given. We're, we're tracing this chronologically. In Acts 2, there at the beginning of verse, or the end of verse 33, He says, He, that would be Jesus Christ, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Now what was Peter referring to when he said this? Christ Jesus has ascended to the heavens. He has poured out this that you see. He's talking about the giving or the pouring of the Holy Spirit. Look at Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. That's what Peter's talking about when he tells these men, Christ has poured out this that you're seeing. Remember, they heard these men preaching in other languages. They said these men are drunk. That's why I do believe the gift of interpretation is required. It's not that you just hear the language because it's yours. There has to be an interpretation or else you hear somebody speaking in Spanish, you don't think they're drunk. You just say, I don't understand that language. So they, they, he said, this, this, you've, all this you've just seen, all these people hearing the gospel interpreted in your language, that's the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And then... There were those there who were not the first recipients of the Spirit. There, the, the apostles and those who had been with Christ. And so in Acts chapter 2, 38, there were all of these Jews who had been gathered around. They hear this sermon. And Peter said to them, verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So there we see it given. That's what it looks like for the Spirit to be given. And you'll remember when we watched through the strange fire thing, R.C. Sproul showed us how this, is, this event is, is uh, multiplied four times throughout the book of Acts. The, the book of Acts is, is structured around these four Pentecosts, as it were, which is or, or structured around the promise, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. So that's what's happening there. The Spirit is given. 
So Jesus Christ promised that He and the Father would send the Holy Spirit. And remember He said it's to your advantage. This will be better. It's better that the Holy Spirit is here now, with us now, than it would be if Jesus Christ in His flesh and blood were still on the earth. It's better. It's to your advantage. Christ is exalted at His ascension. He receives power and glory. And then as the, as the King, He sends His Holy Spirit that same Holy Spirit that had just empowered three years of earthly ministry in Himself. He gives it to men. See? So in our linear study, we have the head of the church, who's both God and man, who ministered on the earth in a physical body by the preaching of the Word and deeds of love and mercy through the power of the Holy Spirit. He's now ascended bodily, bodily, that body that was filled with the Holy Spirit, that body went up into the heavens and then He sent the same Holy Spirit back down to fill His people. That's the blessing of His ascension. That same Spirit that empowered His earthly body now empowers, and we're going to see this in a minute, now empowers a new body, a different body. So that's the first heading. The promise the authority to execute the promise, and then the giving of the Holy Spirit. Alright, heading number 6, Roman numeral 6, or VI for those non-Romans in the room. The title of this one is The Work of the Holy Spirit in General. This will be a five-minute crash course in pneumatology. We're going to look at the Holy Spirit in general. The Holy Spirit, what, what does He do? Turn to John 15. John chapter 15. What does the Holy Spirit do? We'll see first the words of Christ about the Holy Spirit. Then we'll look at the words of uh, Paul concerning the Holy Spirit. We'll look at various names and various operations of the Holy Spirit. John 15, verse 26, first the words of Christ concerning the Holy Spirit. He says, we've read this, but when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about Me. What does the Holy Spirit do? He bears witness about Christ. The word helper there, we've seen this, this is very often used by Christ of the Holy Spirit. The word helper, parakaleo, we, we often hear the term paraclete. He is a helper. The word literally means an advocate. One who would come alongside of you in court and stand beside you and, and argue your case. They would help you in court. They would vouch for you. But notice, this paraclete, this helper, will, will bear witness about me. He will give attestation to Christ. The Holy Spirit will come to stand beside you, not to bear witness about you, but to bear witness about Christ. He will bear witness about Christ. Then look at John 16 and verse 13. He says, when the Spirit of truth comes, 
He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. So it is the job of the Holy Spirit to guide into the truth, to declare the truth, to speak the truth. That's why when we gather for worship and we open up the Scriptures, we say, Holy Spirit, help us. It's His job. That's what He specializes here in declaring the truth, in guiding into the truth. And then look at verse 14 of that chapter. A very explicit statement. He will glorify me, for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. It is the duty of the Holy Spirit to glorify Jesus, not Himself. And also, He will take what is mine and declare it. The Holy Spirit is a, is a declarative person of the Trinity who declares in order to glorify Jesus Christ, in order to exalt Jesus Christ. I do think this would be probably parallel to Jesus saying, go into all the nations and make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, then the Holy Spirit is going to come and He's going to take all that is mine, all my doctrine, all my teaching, all about me, and He'll declare it to you. So, where, anywhere you go, and we saw this when we watched these videos, anywhere the Holy Spirit is supposedly exalted above Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is absent because He doesn't do that. He glorifies Jesus. That's what He does. Where there is a supposed work of the Spirit and that work or the Spirit Himself is somehow exalted over the truth concerning Christ. The Spirit is absent. That's what, what John says in 1 John. If you don't have the Son, you don't have the Father. You, you can't, there's no work of the Spirit that somehow misses Christology. That gets Jesus wrong. And you look at every, almost every heresy in history, they get Christology wrong. They're off on the person and the work of Christ, His deity or His humanity or substitutionary atonement or you name it. They miss something about Christ. And so it doesn't matter what's happening. It doesn't matter all of the show, all of the pomp, all of the, the, the glitter. If they can't give a solid biblical Christology on the person, the work of Christ, it's not the Holy Spirit of God. It might be a spirit, but it's not the Spirit of God. And where there is a claimed unity, this would respect any so-called ecumenism or ecumenical movement where they claim unity, which want to get everybody together and work together, if you have to set aside any truth of Scripture in order to unify, the Spirit's absent. Because the Spirit declares the truth about Christ. Now, could we gather in, and unify with... Uh, 
a, a Bible-believing, conservative, Presbyterian congregation. We could. We wouldn't have to set aside anything. We can agree to disagree, but we don't have to set aside. You see, that would be the difference. We can fellowship with brothers and sisters who may disagree on some things, understanding I'm not setting aside anything, and I don't expect you to set, any side, set aside anything. And usually, if it's gospel work, if you have to set aside something to proclaim the gospel together, um, or set aside a truth in order to somehow come together on a, a truncated gospel, that's not the Holy Spirit. He's not going to require you to reduce the gospel um, or, or get rid of some of the gospel in order to fellowship. Um, and again, so we would gather with Presbyterians and say, we agree on the gospel. Let's preach. We preach the same gospel. So we can do that. But it's not a work of the Spirit. It's not a unity of the Spirit. It's not a, a collaboration of a universal or invisible body when, when Muslims and Catholics and, and, and so-called Christians all get together. That's not the Holy Spirit. Um, it might be the Spirit of Satan, but it's not the Holy Spirit. Um, so that's a work of the Spirit. He glorifies Christ. Okay, and then in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which I just quoted a minute ago, the Lord says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will receive power, and you will be my witnesses. Um, when Paul talks about his prayer for the Ephesians, you see, he prays, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. The, the power that comes along with the Holy Spirit was not just a Pentecost thing. That's a Holy Spirit thing. The Holy Spirit gives power. B.B. Warfield says the Holy Spirit is the executive of the Godhead. He is, and this is, I'll clarify, he is, one commentator said, he is the divine principle of activity. Not meaning the Holy Spirit is, is a principle or a, a, a force. He is a person, a he, but he is the principle of activity within the Godhead. In other words, what God is doing, has done, and will do, he does through his Holy Spirit. Even when the Lord Jesus was on the earth, it was through the Holy Spirit that He was working. Creation, for example, we would say God created. In the beginning was the Word. Without the Word, without Him was not anything made that was made. But who was also there at creation? The Spirit hovered over the face of the deep. The Spirit was there. So the Holy Spirit is the, the power, the working force within the Godhead. So that's the way Jesus describes the Spirit. Then we can look at the words of Paul. First, or this is 2 Corinthians 3.18. We've looked at this several times. 2 Corinthians 3.18. Paul says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, or from glory to glory. For this comes from the Lord, who is Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God progressively sanctifies us. He's the one who moves us along this process from beginning glory and beginning faith 
to more faith, to more faith, to more glory, to more glory, from faith to faith, from glory to glory. That progress, if you've grown, if you've learned, if you've been, had any victory over sin, any power, any, any working of God in your life, any sanctification in your home, the Holy Spirit did that. That's what He does. He progressively sanctifies us. Then, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. The Holy Spirit seals us for salvation. Paul says, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. The Holy Spirit is the seal, the guarantee of our salvation, of our, of our future glorification. He's the earnest. He's the down payment. The down payment, not like at the pawn shop where you might give them $10 and they never see you again. The down payment that secures the rest of the payment is coming, without a doubt. He's the earnest money. The, the, the surety in our souls. Again, this goes back to what we were talking about this morning. How do we know? We have this inheritance. The Scripture says you have this inheritance, eternal life with, with Christ. How do we know? Because God has given us the seal, the Holy Spirit. That Holy Spirit produces faith, which means we live in the reality of the future. The, the hope, that hope for unseen uh, truth with regard to all things spiritual. He seals us and so we know it. Again, how do I know if you know, this is a common question? Not very smart, but common. Well, how do I know if I'm elect? Do you believe? If you believe, you are. Well, how can I be sure of my salvation? Do you believe? That's it. Believe. If someone's doubting, say, run to Christ. Believe. Call on Him. Pray to Him. Believe. He's the down payment. He secures it knowing that he will, the Lord will someday come and finish the work. And then Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. We'll look at this one again later. But the Holy Spirit causes us to sing, gives us thankful hearts, and creates humble hearts. Paul says, Do not be drunk or get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing... Notice that language, be filled with the Spirit, addressing. Here's what's going to happen when you're filled with the Spirit, addressing one another. Now think of the context of that. Think of it. You're going to be filled with the Spirit, it immediately produces what? You're addressing one another. The, the filling of the Spirit automatically assumes relationships with somebody else. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The third one, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And of course, you know, he goes in, wives submit to your own husbands. And he gives the wives and the, the husband's role and the children's role and the slave's role. That that family atmosphere, that family table. The Holy Spirit produces a demeanor of godliness 
in all of our dealings, especially with other Christians. Now that's going to come into play later because I do believe that is one of the primary differences between the work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Covenant and the work of the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant. So, that's what Paul says about the Holy Spirit. Now very quickly, and if you want to write these references down, you can. Just various names of the Holy Spirit. These names tell us something about what He does. In Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10, He is called the Spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, or in the King James, the Spirit of supplications. When you pray, you're praying in the Spirit, or you should pray in the Spirit. We're commanded to pray in the Spirit. Spirit of grace, Spirit of supplications. In Isaiah 11, 2, and I wanted these in here because these are Old, Old Testament passages. Isaiah 11, 2, He is called the Spirit of the Lord, that is Yahweh, the Spirit of Yahweh the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of the fear of the Lord. That's, so you could deduce from that, what does the Spirit do? He increases the fear of God in people. In John 14, 17, He's the spirit of truth. In John 14, 26 and others, He's the helper, the paraclete, the advocate, in Romans 8, chapter 2, or verse 2, he's the spirit of life. In Romans 8, 15, he's the spirit of adoption. And we, we've talked about adoption. There's various names that the spirit is given. And then various operations that are attributed to the spirit in general. In 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 10, the spirit searches the depths of God. In verse 13, the spirit teaches the truth. And the Spirit interprets the truth. You've heard me reference the twofold work of Revelation. He has, to, he has to get the truth out, and He also has to help us see it, help us understand it. In Romans 8, 14, the Spirit leads us. In Romans 8, 16, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are sons of God. In Romans 15, 16, the Spirit sanctifies in Galatians 5.17, we learn that the Spirit is against the flesh and the flesh against the Spirit. They're contrary. Ephesians 4.3, we learn that the Spirit unites us. In Ephesians 3.16, the Spirit strengthens with power. In Acts 4.31, the Spirit gave the Christians their boldness to preach the truth. In John 16.8, He will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. So... Where there is no conviction of sin in general and sins in particular, where there is no understanding of the perfect righteousness of Christ that satisfies the holiness of God so that He may then enter into the presence of God, and where there is no understanding of the ruling and reigning King of kings who's trampled over Satan, no matter how elaborate they show or how good people feel when they leave or how much hugging and crying they do at the altar, the Spirit is absent. Because that's what He does, is He convicts the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Now, a lot of times we don't like conviction of sin. That's not fun. As a preacher, I come into preaching sermons and I think, man, this is, this is hard. I know this is hard. It's been hard on me. I know that's not going to be fun to listen to. But if there's no conviction of sin, there's no Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit's absent.
So, very quick synopsis of the work of the Holy Spirit in general. Um, while there are greater degrees of revelation now, in other words, Christ has come now. The promises of God concerning the Messiah are fulfilled now, except for those still to come. Other than those types of things, again, that, was, that would be what I would call the quantity or quality of His work. That work of the Holy Spirit is no different now than it's ever been. Adam and Eve were justified by faith in Christ alone through the power of the Holy Spirit. They were indwelt by the Holy Spirit, born again of the Holy Spirit of God. Just like we are. Nothing has changed. However, I do believe in, in the Old Covenant, all of the Holy Spirit's work was looking, was pointing forward, preparatory, preserving a remnant, looking forward, and now He's just showing us it's all done. He, he illuminates the realities of Christ having fulfilled all of that. So it's no longer preparatory. It's, it's fulfilled. I don't know how you, would, how you could say that. Again, a lot of this language... It's, it's hard to put into teaching terminology. Um, so, what has changed? Again, I've, I've got three main headings here. I'm basically teaching you nothing has changed. But I do believe something has changed. So this is heading number seven, V-I-I, Roman numeral seven, the new work of the Holy Spirit in the saints. The new work of the Holy Spirit in the saints. If you can point to one thing and say this is the new thing, this is about all I can, all I can see. The initial work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of a Christian takes place at regeneration. And a new creation is begotten. You'll remember we talked about the new creation. That's His first work. He creates a new thing. And then conversion takes place from that. Again, we call that the new birth, being born again, being born from above, being born of God. All saints have always been saved that same way. I do believe that the prior work was preparatory and forward-looking. But what seems to be apparently different is that now the Holy Spirit is placing believers immediately into a defined body, a defined body visible, I can see it, body. Now let me explain. Turn to 1 Corinthians 12. This passage that we should spend a lot of time in when we're studying the, the work of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit and the body. 1 Corinthians 12. Look at verse 13. Paul writes, For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. In this verse we have the means of being introduced into this body in one Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the means by which we are put 
into the body, the method, we were all baptized, immersed, sunken into the Spirit, as it were. He comes into us, and we come into Him. It's, it's, it's um, you know, imagine a, a drowning body. You're in the water first, and then you gulp in the water. You've got it inside, you've got it outside. You're, you're almost... One with the water. The Holy Spirit baptizes you, fills you, and here's the goal, into one body. So upon regeneration, where the Spirit comes in, makes a new creature, a Christian is born into a spiritual family, a church, a body. Upon regeneration, new birth, a saint becomes the spiritual brother and sister to other brothers and sisters. It's like a family. It's not individual. It's not all by yourself. It's not that it doesn't affect anyone any more than the, the birth of a child coming into a family doesn't affect everyone else in the family. It could make a, an only child a brother at that point, or a sister. It makes parents who had no children, it makes them, or it makes a, a husband and a wife now mom and dad. It, it affects other people. It's a, it, it is a relational new birth immediately into a body. And remember the context of Paul speaking there in 1 Corinthians 12. This goes back to the very first week, verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. The body was the local church at Corinth. And we could go into here the keys of the kingdom being given to the local church, the, the, the authority to admit, to outwardly verify and confirm salvation is given to the church, not the individual. It's not the individual's job to say, hey, I'm a Christian now. It's the church's job. You come into the body and the body says, yes, you're, you're one of us. So Paul says that the Holy Spirit upon regeneration baptizes us into a body. We're born into a family. Now, here's where I think the, the new covenant is different because Old Testament saints were regenerated, but the community, the covenant people of God at that time was, was not a spirit birth community. It was physical. So you had millions of people, but if you could see with spiritual sight, you would see within that millions of people only a remnant according to grace within there. And they were scattered. They weren't clearly defined. When they went to worship, they didn't say, well, all the, all the non-believing fake Christians or fake believers over here and all the true God-fearing Jews over here. No, they were all together. But now there is a distinct and defined local church body. Again, a visible church. You can see it. It's not something that we're wondering around where the church is. No, usually you look for the building with the tall cross on the top of it. There's the church. It's defined. So through spiritual birth and union with Christ and the means of grace, the Spirit works primarily in and through the local church. And that brings to mind the old uh, statement that there's no salvation outside of the church. Why? Because the church has the truth. The church has the Holy Spirit. The church has the gospel. That's what we do. We've been given the keys. Now, does that mean someone can't be converted apart from a body or apart from the, any knowledge of, of a church in their area? No, but if they've heard the gospel or read a Bible, that's because a member of the body was reached out to them in some way. Somehow, the body, the church, was the means by which the Spirit works. So, again, we return to our picture. 
a human body with a head. The head is Christ, and Christ is both God and man. He ministered in a physical body in the power of the Holy Spirit. His physical body ascends to the right hand of God. He sends His Holy Spirit back down to the earth, and He immerses people into a new body, a spiritual body, a mystical body. So, the, so if, if we're looking at the picture, we have the head and we have the body, the physical body of Christ. It leaves and then is replaced with the church, the mystical body, and He remains the head. And it's filled with the same Holy Spirit that filled Him in His ministry. Perhaps you'll remember the analogy when we were talking about our union with Christ. Just as a man's head and feet are animated by the same Spirit, even though that man's head might reach to the clouds and his feet be in the bottom of the ocean, because he's one body, the same Spirit is filling that that body. It's the same with the body of Christ. Though the head be in the heavens and the body on the earth, because it's the same spirit that animates them both, they remain one body. So we are the body of Christ. Or we might could say the earthly presence of the body of Christ has changed from a physical body to a spiritual body. But Christ still ministers on the earth. On earth He had a body on earth, and now that He's in heaven, He has a body on earth. And so the Holy Spirit places each individual into the body of Christ. All right, now turn with me to uh, first Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. We started at like 6.08, so I'm not going over my time. Colossians chapter 3. Here I want to show you that the, the, the Spirit gives life to the parts of the body. Colossians chapter 3. And we'll also be turning to Ephesians chapter 5 again. But Colossians chapter 3 says, and listen to these. I've said before, Colossians and Ephesians are, are like sister letters. They're almost parallel. They're not... They don't lay on top of each other parallel, but they're, I mean, you can find the same things in both of them. So I want you to notice the, these statements and how similar they are. And know that when that happens, if Paul says in one place, well, I'll show you. Colossians chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Christ is in heaven. How does that happen? He's up there. His body's up there. How could the peace of Christ rule in a, a heart? Think about that. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Peace of Christ in the heart, called into one body, word of Christ dwelling in us. Now Ephesians chapter 5, the parallel passage. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now remember in Colossians, he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Here he says, be filled with the Spirit. 
addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always. In Colossians he said, uh, thankfulness in your hearts to God, be thankful. Here he says, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Can you see these are parallel passages? He's written the same thing in two different ways. Therefore, I, I do believe when he says in Colossians, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart and the word of Christ dwell in you richly, that is paralleled to be filled with the Spirit. To be filled with the Spirit is to have the peace of Christ rule in your heart. It is to have the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now, again, think about the context of all of these things. You're teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. You're singing together psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. You're thankful to God. You're submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The Holy Spirit comes in, places you into the body, fills you with the peace of Christ and the Word of Christ so that you can interact in that body. That's what's happening. The Spirit comes in and it is, it is an immediate attachment to the body. What you've been given, you've been given to serve in a body. You see, so, so a Christian apart from a body is always going to be lacking either in what they're giving out or what they're receiving because you're made to be in a body. And how could we sum up our interaction within the body? How, if we could put all of the interaction in the body into two words, what would it be? Colossians 3.17 Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Again, the context is a Spirit-filled body of Christ, not... Christians are not born again separate from, from, but we are filled with the Spirit exclusively for the body. And what does this new covenant mystical body of Christ do? We minister in word and deed to the glory of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, we do the same thing Jesus did. We just keep on going. He goes, He leaves us, we just we, we pick up where He left off and we continue that same work. So can you see that picture? Is all of that making sense? Our work is not separate from what Christ began. You understand the relation between Christology and ecclesiology. Why a church? Why a body? You, you see it? Are, you, are we clear? Do you have any questions about any of that connection? I know that's, to me it's big. Maybe it's not that big. To me it's, uh, it's uh, when I begin to understand this connection as a Baptist and, and specifically as a uh, reformed Baptist, usually spiritual gifts is, you really only study spiritual gifts when you want to know what you don't believe. Like you, you watch Strange Fire and you go home. We'll just leave it at that. 
But if you want to have a church that honors the Lord and is biblical and has power to achieve biblical, godly success, not worldly success, what God wants the church to do, you have to understand the Spirit of Christ must be there making each and every part function properly. Every little part. That's where we begin. All of those parts of the body, they're all animated to work in a body. You cut a finger off, it's no good. Maybe make a necklace out of it, but that's it. It's not going to be of any use. And then from that point on, that hand is not going to work properly. But when the finger is stuck on the hand, it works. That's how a body is. And so when we understand that picture, and we also understand its connection to Christ and how we are to continue doing His work, then you want to know, well, what, what are the gifts? What do I need to do? What, if, what has God gifted me to do to join in that? Has He made me a finger? Where's the hand? I need to get on the hand. Has He made me a knee? Well, then I better get between a shin and a thigh or that's going to be a limping body. We gotta, you figure out your parts, you see. It, it, hopefully it encourages you to want to know. Um, and, I, and I'll just as a, a, a hint or a little clue as to where we're going, word and deed. You can take all the spiritual gifts and put them in those two categories, pretty much. Word gifts, deed gifts. Speaking gifts, love gifts. Preaching gifts and helping gifts. They all fall in one of those two categories. Some of you already know, I'm either primarily a speaker, that's my gift, or I'm not a speaker. You know it, but you're needed. You're needed. The speakers need the non-speakers. The, the quiet, helping, behind-the-scenes people need the people who are going to step up and say, here's what the Word says. Some people are gifted to, to use the Word, maybe not in a public setting, but you get one-on-one -on -one with them and they start speaking the Scriptures and you just, you just fall back and you say, oh, I can hear that all day. That gave me everything I needed. You see, different gifts, word gifts, de-gifts, and I, I, I think they sort of sometimes intertwine and some people are really good at... at helping along with the Word, or, or, or we'll get into that. But they're in those two categories. We just keep doing what Jesus did. So, no questions.